This is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Vernon. We've got two topics for you this week, as well as some news about the future of The Kicker coming up at the end of the show. Later, I'll talk with CJR's Amanda Dara about her in-depth look at one California city's struggle with the increasing polarization of local media. But first, it's been just over a year since the New York Times broke the Harvey Weinstein story, and we're recording this on the anniversary of Ronan Farrow's first piece for The New Yorker. The Times' Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy, who broke that Weinstein story, wrote this weekend, quote, Now, even after a year of painful memories, cascades of firings, widespread outrage, criticisms from the president, and a fight over a Supreme Court seat, we have only one firm prediction. This discussion over harassment and assault has no end in sight. To discuss all that's happened over the past year with that coverage, I'm joined by my colleagues Alex Neeson and Noska Renner. So guys, when we sat here a couple weeks after the initial Weinstein stories and a handful of other men had been accused, I think it's fair to say that we were all doubtful that that moment would last as long as it has. Alex, a year on, do you think, beyond the exposure of a group of powerful men, that anything has really changed? Well... There's like a vertigo in considering the answer to that question because a lot of stuff has changed in that we've seen the departures of lots of prominent men. Um, But if you look beyond that and consider whether the institutions that enabled their behavior and like the power structures that they abused, whether those have changed, I think that largely the answer is no. And you see that there are a couple of examples of this most recently Um, You had Brett Kavanaugh, who had been nominated for the Supreme Court and credibly accused of sexual assault and then pushed through uh, and recently confirmed. Um, But you kind of you can you can see other examples of this as well. Even before Me Too, um, you saw Donald Trump be accused a number of times of uh, sexual harassment and then elected. Um, You saw people like Betsy DeVos, who runs the Federal Department of Education, get be installed and then immediately reverse a lot of the federal guidelines around sexual assault on college campuses, turning the direction away from victims and to the notion that to the idea that men um, are being falsely accused in a widespread way. So I think when you look at like the moment beyond the hashtag and beyond the stories about these prominent men, a lot of the institutions and power structures um, have not only not changed, but have regressed in some instances. Yeah. I mean, to that, I would add that our focus has been largely on celebrities and on celebrity men um, and a couple of women who have abused their positions of power. And what we haven't seen is any of the smaller stories. I mean, I, I definitely believe that Hollywood is a very different place to be and that some of the larger media institutions are, are very different now as an employee than they were a year ago. And many women probably in the media probably feel more protected. But I'm disappointed by the extent to which that hasn't snowballed into other industries that, you know, are less inherently about entertainment or less about celebrity and are more about, you know, normal women who go to work and are afraid of getting this kind of attention. Yeah, I mean, as we prepared for this podcast, we could cite any number of men who were accused reported on and lost their jobs. We could celebrate the reporting of 
Jody Cantor and Megan Tui and Ronan Farrow and Amy Britton and Kim Masters, all of these reporters who have done work on big names uh, that have resulted in a change in who delivers our news and who decides what's in the news. But then when we said, okay, well, who's addressing sort of other industries that aren't in the spotlight, that aren't media, entertainment, politics, I think the the big piece we came up with was that New York Times investigation and then struggled to think of other stuff. About about the Ford. Yeah, about the Ford plant in Chicago, which was a great piece, but one that we haven't seen a ton of similar work like. Yeah, I mean, the generous reading of this is that the idea is to change the culture. And so you begin to change the culture by changing the culture industry. That you know, by changing Hollywood, by changing the kind of like screenplays that get put through, you're going to have like a trickle down effect on normal people. I think the idea, though, that Me Too would be limited to culture is really sad to me because I I think that you can't really have real change for women unless you change not only the culture, but also the the policies and like the legal atmosphere around how much women's accounts are believed. It, yeah, and it's also I mean it's a historical to think that if starting at the top like you said and attacking the culture makers that that creates a trickle down effect. Like when has that ever worked? When has it ever when, when what examples do we have of where starting with the most powerful affects change for the people who have the least power. There's like, I can't think of an example of that. And the media role in adopting that narrative is around like framing and how we decide what stories to tell. Um, And I think there were some early, some discussions about this early on um, after the Weinstein reporting where you suddenly started to hear journalists talking about how they were being approached by women um, with their stories and about how they were making decisions about which leads to chase, which stories to investigate and ultimately publish. Um, And I can remember uh, someone commenting about how difficult it was to be getting stories in their inbox from people uh, with their stories about abuse or harassment and having to tell them, I'm sorry, but I can't devote my time and resources to this because we don't know who this person is and nobody knows and thus it doesn't matter enough um, to warrant the sort of large-scale investigations that we saw with people like Harvey Weinstein and everyone that came after him. Um, And so I think there is a role that we play in deciding what is important and I think sometimes we it feels like we're repeating that rule like well newsworthiness is sort of defined by power and celebrity Um, But those are the very institutions uh, that we're supposed to be interrogating in our reporting. And so it's like we can change those rules. We can decide what is going to be important and we can make a decision to chase a story in which a person who's accused is maybe a nobody and and thereby make it important. And I think I feel like that's sort of the piece of this from our perspective as journalists that we haven't talked enough about that there is a way for us to usher a moment to a movement if that's the stated goal. That point you speak about, it's really dealing with a system, right? And it's a cultural system. It's a financial system. Um, Any of these industries have these established systems with often men in positions of power. Uh, That is changing slowly, uh, if at all. And I think addressing in reporting those systems as opposed to focusing on the individual men. I hope that's something that we're going to see more of as we get into the second year of this 
movement moment, whatever we're, we're calling it right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're it. I can't argue with you being right, but I would say that systemic change is such a hand wavy term right now. I mean, people mm. talk a lot about like, okay, we have to like change the structure and like the structure will mean that like individual women then have a better time. And I think it's actually just like people understand what structural problems are now, which is like awesome. I'm so glad that, you know, we can begin to talk about things like treatment of women and like police violence in terms of like systemic things. But I think it's also now time for us to start to break that term apart and to look more specifically at like, okay, let's talk about like what I was just saying, like the culture industry being one system that we're breaking down. And then like, how do you actually pivot that to another system? There are like, there are many, many systems that end up upholding this bad treatment of women for lack of a better phrase so you mean like going into the retail retail clothing yes. business and saying what's the problems there going and looking at contract workers what are the problems looking there? at like white collar people looking at blue collar people like there are different systems in place in both of those in in if you're looking at you know large companies where uh you know there are white collar workers who are like relatively rich the problem is about reputation. If you look at blue collar workers, the problem is about money. They're not coming forward because they don't want to lose their jobs. Like those are two completely different sets of ramifications that need to be dealt with in different ways. The other part of this story as we get to the one year mark or past the one year mark is the backlash against Me Too. And that was a big topic around Kavanaugh's confirmation. Um, it was a topic that you both wrote about in addressing sort of the return of Me Too men and how they're sometimes being allowed space to sort of write these confessional self-pitying essays. But what's the media's role in covering that backlash uh, to try and explain to our audiences how dissenters from this movement feel? I don't know what we can do. I mean, I, I think this is sort of the limit of journalism as you do the journalism and you try to do it in such a way that uncovers these systems where they exist. And then, you know, what people then do with that is somewhat out of our control. Sure. But I think, I mean, it is a limit of journalism, but we also make decisions like these confessionals that you mentioned, these like self-pitying essays. Somebody made a decision to assign that and to then run it. Um, I, like the other week when the Wall Street Journal ran that Kavanaugh op-ed. Like these are all decisions. And I think we can argue about like the news department and the opinion pages and what the separation is. But ultimately, journalists working at newspapers and magazines and websites make decisions about what they're going to put on their home pages or on the front pages and what's going to be important. And so in covering backlash, like perhaps if Kavanaugh defends himself, then we do have a responsibility to report on that. Whether or not we have a responsibility to offer real estate for an op-ed is a choice. And so I think that we have those are the choices that we can make. And so it's not about like, don't cover the thing, but it is about how do we cover it and how prominently, uh, you know, where we place it and what sort of real estate we offer that. Because we are setting a tone when somebody visits our website or opens the magazine or the newspaper whatever's there is we send them a message about here's what's important and what you should consider. And so we inform the, the, the cultural moment in that way. 
Okay, so given what we've just talked about and kind of what we've been talking about over the course of this past year, I want to return to a question I think I first asked you guys almost a year ago. Are you optimistic about this movement? What did we say? <laughs> I can guess what I said. I, you <laughs> you both, were like, no. I was probably not optimistic. <laughs> no, neither of you were. And yeah. I kind of understood where you were coming from, right? Like, we didn't have evidence. In We'd seen Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly, and we'd seen Donald Trump, uh, you know, different results for those people. But I don't think that anybody could have predicted this number of people would have been exposed, that we would still be talking about this as really, aside from Donald Trump, the dominant story of the past year. But going forward, having Donald Trump, someone who's been accused by over 20 women of sexual harassment and assault, having Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, who has been accused by multiple women of sexual abuse, are you optimistic that this Me Too coverage uh, and conversation is going to create change. Okay, I I will say that like optimism isn't the word that I would use because optimism calls to mind like a light butterfly feeling, and I think that all of the reporting that's happened has been extremely important. I think this will continue to happen on a large scale. However, I am extremely afraid and confused and upset by the backlash to it and in particular the the narrative about false accusations that the GOP has like immediately just like learned is the way to go if you're attempting to like get out of any of these situations I mean I you know I went home to a rural place and spoke with people there and people there were like throwing out you know false accusations left and right to describe everything from Ford to people in their own past to, you know, accusers of Catholic priests. And and the power of the, the claim about somebody, an accuser being fake or an accuser having like a false memory is terrifying to me. And I feel like that this is like, we're not we're not done after Kavanaugh reckoning with that. Alex, I want to get to uh, your thoughts on the optimism versus concern scale. But Noska, something you mentioned there that I worry about is this Kavanaugh fight, this confirmation. I worry that it has politicized the Me Too movement in a way that is going to pit, oh, liberals are believing women and Republicans are, you know, this false accusation narrative because now the media is yeah. seen as aligning with Kavanaugh critics and people who support Brett Kavanaugh are saying, well, the liberals and the media are working together to push this narrative. And I worry about the politicization of this issue going forward. Yeah, I mean, I'm fine with it being politicized. I don't understand what, like, why you wouldn't want it to be politicized. It seems great that it would be politicized, except that then the anti-Me Too movement also becomes politicized and it just becomes a totally fraught battle. I guess I felt like this was something that was reaching across party lines that people were saying there are Democrats who have done bad things. There are Republicans who have done bad things. There are conservative figures, liberal figures. This is a societal problem, not a political problem. And if it becomes an us versus them and the narrative versus the backlash and breaks down on political lines, I worry about essentially half the country dropping out of this conversation. I would say 
this kind of leads nicely into like how I answer the question of whether I'm convinced that the coverage will continue and like affect some some larger change. Um, on, on the concern about the issue post Kavanaugh being uh, politicized along party lines, I think that that's a valid concern. But I think that this issue has always been politicized for certain people. And my biggest disappointment with Me Too began before Me Too and its current iteration even started. We had Harvey Weinstein reporting drop that's incredibly important and valuable and had to be done, and I'm glad that it was done. But immediately after that, even the term Me Too was co-opted from a black woman who was entirely erased from the conversation for the mm-hmm. first chunk of the, you know, the birth of this, mo- of this moment or movement or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so the politicization of this along racial lines has always been evident. We saw it again with Kavanaugh in looking at how Anita Hill was treated and how she was covered by journalists um, versus how Christine Bozzi Ford was. And so I think my biggest disappointment then has been the failure of the coverage to move beyond the sort of circles of media and entertainment and celebrity and power that we mentioned also before, but also um, its failure to offer equal real estate and consideration to victims who are not white, frankly. Um, And I think that that's one of the biggest sort of shortcomings. And it makes me feel not optimistic that it's going to impact change because when these things happen, when coverage leads to to some you know, beginning of structural change, if it does not include the absolutely most marginalized people, then it's not going to happen. That's history. And we know that. And so I think until we see our coverage start to reflect the reality, um, the full picture, the full reality of who has been victimized and abused, and uh, then I don't think that we can expect to see any large scale meaningful change. For our second topic, I'm joined by CJR Delacourt fellow Amanda Dara, who traveled out to Southern California earlier this fall to report a story that I felt serves as a microcosm for the battles over politics and media that are taking place across the country. So Amanda, first, set the scene for those of us who haven't been to Santa Clarita, where your story's set. Sure. So it's a town... 33 miles northwest of L.A. It was settled in the 1870s as ranch land, so cattle, farmers, alfalfa, oranges. The old families are descended from those ranchers. They're very conservative. Um, The population has grown to over 200,000, but there's still a very small town feel. On one of the days I was out there reporting, I went down to the town mall to check out a couple of uh, leads, and I ran into the owner of the local radio station, and he said, hey, people are sending photos of you from their iPhones. (laughs) Just because you were from out of town? Yeah. (laughs) A lot of, like, you're not from around here? Yeah, asking who you are. Right. And and this in a town of over 200,000 at this point, right? So very small-town feel. Um, It's scrub and brush. They shot westerns there. John Wayne shot there in the 30s and 40s. Quentin Tarantino shoots there now. I mean, it's it and it looks like that. So a town that is near L.A., but very much of a different world. That's right. Um, It's completely cut off from the L.A. radio waves. Um, So they're reliant on local media in that way, unless they're in their cars. So you mentioned that there are two local papers now, 
But that wasn't the case until earlier this year, which is kind of what your story is about. So take me back to uh, The Signal, which is this paper that's been around for decades, kind of the local standard bearer, which got new ownership earlier this year? Yeah. So starting in 2016, The Signal had basically for the first time ever had owners that local progressives felt were slightly more moderate in their politics. But earlier this year, when the Budmans, Richard and Chris Budman, bought the paper, uh, Richard had been a publisher before from 2004 to 2007, and local conservatives were overjoyed um, that he was back. Local progressives were very concerned. And the editorial pages took a sharp turn to the right almost right away. You know, one of the first editorials was blaming immigrant children's parents for the separation issue. And one of the last lines was, where is the red carpet? You know, like really a a little unkind. So this is a region that traditionally is Republican, correct? Yes, incredibly so. So California, as we know, is very liberal along the coast and the interior is far more Republican. Santa Clarita is kind of an anomaly, whereas L.A. County in 2016, um, only 22% voted for Trump. Within Santa Clarita Valley, 49% voted for Trump, and they voted solidly down ballot for the GOP. In fact, the, uh, the Antelope Valley Press, which is just like the next valley over, is one of only 20 dailies in the country that endorsed Trump. So these are ranchers, and it's very conservative, and um, it's been that way forever. So it's an environment um, with not a lot of trust, especially from the left, and with a deep rift. And so that rift, it sounds like, was exacerbated by these new owners uh, who took this editorial slant and blamed the previous owner for the, the past few years for injecting opinion, liberal bias, all of the things that we kind of heard on a national level. And what made this place interesting to us, I think, for a story, was that some of the people who didn't trust this new new owner and so therefore didn't trust their only print media source in the town decided they were going to do something about it. That's right. One of the first things the Budmans announced was that they were going to start a new Sunday news magazine that would be delivered for free to 70,000 homes. So this was going to be a huge new opportunity for them. They were going to have the ear of many more people. And um, right at that time, one of the progressive city council candidates, a young man named Logan Smith, um, was looking at the Budman's Twitter accounts and found some very disturbing material. Richard had retweeted something from President Trump, Uh, calling CNN fake news and, you know, several things like that. But his wife, Chris Budman, in the tweet where she announced their purchase of the paper, indicated her concern that they managed to keep the valley solidly red in the upcoming midterms. And also, you know, horrible birtherism and um, right-wing extremist content against the Parkland kids, uh, against the Clintons, disturbing stuff. Right. And so this sets up kind of battle lines that you describe in the piece between this old, traditional, very conservative print newspaper and this young progressive startup that are basically offering two different versions of local news, right? This is more so two sides arguing about local issues, right? I think that's right. You know, Budman and his editor-in-chief have a, have lifelong experience in local news and the the proclaimers 
publisher and editor-in-chief, uh, though both have experience, one in radio, one as a writer, a published writer, both are more activists than journalists. And they're coming at this with a lot of passion that I think was really galvanized by the national response to the Budman's tweets. It made them feel validated. It made them feel motivated. And so they really wanted to see what they could accomplish. So reading your piece, what I took away from it was that in this time of incredible polarization in our national politics and to a large extent our local politics, and a time when you have a lot of people who don't trust the media or at least don't trust some portion of the media, whether that means you think CNN's fake news, whether you think that means Fox News is pro-Trump propaganda, consumers have this sort of distrust of many news outlets. And what we see in Santa Clarita is essentially two offerings, one for conservatives and one for progressives, that on some level seem like they're just going to deepen those divides. Is that sort of what you got? So I've spoken with reporters at the Signal's newsroom, and they say that their editor-in-chief is constantly asking about optics and making sure they report both sides. I think they really are trying. I think that part of the problem may just be that they're white men in their 50s and 60s, and they have a certain worldview. And so certain stories just aren't on their radar. And that's one of the goals of the proclaimer um, is to cover, you know, the burgeoning art scene in town and show that it's not as sterile as people see it. It's also about telling the stories of the Latino population there that rarely appear in the signal. You know, for example, a local scandal with uh, the Christian seminary in town. The signal did not mention um, a history of covering up over 100 sexual assaults. And that's what the proclaimer talked about. Right. So it sounds like these sort of concerns are the same that we hear playing out in big cities and small towns all over the country and have to do on some level with people who do hold certain political opinions, be they on the right or left, losing trust in certain news sources. That's right. Um, in fact, there was a recent study by Politico uh, that showed that when readers lose trust in their hometown news sources, they turn to partisan national outlets and to social media to fill the void. Now, conservatives are much less likely to encounter different opinions on social media than liberals are. So when wealthy conservatives buy papers, which happens all the time, has always happened, they tend to serve older white populations. But these populations change and so there, there is a whole part of their community they're no longer serving, and that can really increase the rift. Yeah, definitely. And that's something that I think comes across really well in your piece. Uh, again, it's up at cjr.org, titled Both Sides Now. And I think it provides a really great look at these big picture national conversations we've been having in microcosm. And when you see that rift playing out, on a local level with individuals who you can put a name and a face to, uh, it really tells us something about the moment that we're in. So, Amanda, thanks so much for coming down to talk about it. Thanks for having me. That was our show, and I've got a little bit of an extended sign-off today because this is my last episode hosting The Kicker. It's been a crazy past couple of years in the media world and the world in general, and I feel incredibly privileged to have gotten the chance to talk through it all with my friends and colleagues on this podcast. I'll still be around CJR on the website for a bit longer before heading off on my next adventure overseas, 
But until then, uh, I leave you in good hands. The kicker will continue. And I'll say it one more time. Thanks for kicking it with us. It's time to move on. It's time to get going. What lies ahead, I have no way to know. But under my feet, baby, grass is growing. It's time to move on.